this is The Media Mix. I'm Claire Atkinson. On this episode, the power of Barbie marketing, plus the intense media interest in this very unique movie and how Hollywood finally got older women back to the movies. The movie isn't just a promotional device for plastic doll sales, but a story that director Greta Gerwig took into the real world and embraced some of the criticisms about the doll. The movie has been taking the box office by storm, exceeding opening weekend expectations, and is still drawing cinema goers and even repeat viewing. The franchise not only attracted longtime Barbie fans, but it's creating new ones. And that's because the marketing plan was unlike any other. Warner Brothers threw all of its eggs in the Barbie cart, spending an estimated $150 million marketing the movie, and it paid off. Not only did people go to see the movie without knowing what it was about, but the marketing efforts also created events, viral social media movements, fashion trends, vacation trends, and a heightened obsession with pink. Creating a life-size Barbie house and styling the cast in Barbie looks the film has become a once-in-a-decade phenomenon. Now the question is, did Barbie change the game for other films? Is this what our social media-driven world now expects before a box office hit? And it wasn't just Barbie. There was a wave of attention spent by the media on Barbenheimer. That's because Barbie and the film Oppenheimer debuted on the same weekend. Oppenheimer was able to ride the Barbie wave, essentially creating free marketing as a result. The press was hooked on the trend and it spurred memes and merchandise and conversations across social media. So did Barbie just change the game for film and marketing in general? Denny too is the chief marketing officer of IMAX, which helped propel Oppenheimer ticket sales. Hear what he has to say about the two movies and also the effects of clickbaity news environment that we're living in right now. There's been lots of conversations about Barbie and Barbie's marketing, but tell us about Oppenheimer's. What were the special marketing tactics? What was the marketing spend? Can you talk about how it was rolled out? I mean, the, the idea that it got kind of hashtagged together with the Barbie movie into its own kind of unique brand is kind of a, a funny story, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say, uh, you know, Barbie is, you know, to, to give props to um, to the Warner Brothers team, to the Mattel team, to the Barbie team, and to Barbie fans. I think they've done an incredible job. And I think what they've demonstrated, it's not an if movie, it's a plussed up experience. And you saw that over the weekend where you had, um, thousands of people doing, um, you know, watching both experiences and making that an experience in itself. And I think we've come from a world where we're very binary. It was either one way or the other. Yeah. We certainly know with IMAX fans, you know, we have uh, fans that watch a ton of movies in the theater and they'll watch a ton in streaming and they're not one or the other. So, um, it, it's a, it's a real, it's a, it was a really great moment, uh, in terms of, you know, um, uh, you know, the overall marketing for, for Oppenheimer, I will leave the big beats for our partners at Universal to to talk about. We certainly, um, you know, won't get into, uh, you know, sort of their overall strategy and spend. But I can tell you for us, we opened the movie in 75 uh, countries. Um, we worked hand in hand with them to feature shot with IMAX film camera messaging throughout the campaign and tagged across all elements. We did a lot of firsts on this campaign, including um, new 
sort of creative marketing visuals that we've never done before. And we did a ton of always on social collaboration. We partnered with some of the biggest TikTokers in partnership with Universal, bring those stories to life. We integrated IMAX film cameras for the first time, uh, both the physical camera and high profile publicity events. And believe it or not, people love taking pictures with those cameras. Um, and I think there's there's a gold mine there that the idea that um, how um, sort of uh, physical the IMAX brand can feel, we certainly saw that. Um, and we delivered that uh, across, uh, you know, 40 global exhibitor partners, 160 placements, we can go into the list. We also did really fun little things, like create um, sort of exclusive giveaways, we are doing a drop, we're in our second drop of a film strip program, which uh, was offered to uh, certain locations and fans have been loving it. Um, they've uh, ended up in places like eBay already, but it just shows you that um, that a giveaway at high value and very special um, is something that's really important to fans. And we de- de- uh, developed three unique ones and they're the last one launched on opening weekend. We have one this Friday and one for the third weekend. So that keeps us, uh, keeps up momentum for us and they're all unique. So you can collect the collect the set and, and watch the movie multiple times. But mm-hmm. that's just uh, some of the examples I can give from our campaign. Yeah, I'm I'm actually intrigued by the idea that uh, some people went to see Oppenheimer and Barbie. Is that something that's pretty unique? Uh, have you seen that before? Do people like see very, very different movies in the same movie going session or on the same weekend? I think it I think it is pretty unique. But I think one thing that that folks forget is if you're a, if you're fanatical about film, you're fanatical about film. If you, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've been selling out 4 a.m. showings, showings at the BFI in London, which was my local. Um, and, uh, you know, to walk up to the, that beautiful location at four o'clock in the morning, you can imagine the community of fandom that's going to be there and the energy that you have. And so, you know, the, the fandom that was shown across both Barbie and Oppenheimer, I think is something very unique to our industry. And film is an incredibly important part of, of storytelling. And uh, we're excited about that. But so much of what you saw out of the weekend was fan-driven. It was yeah. absolutely fan-driven. It wasn't, it wasn't something that you could plan. You know, I'll highlight something that we saw very early on that was very surprising to us. During a very early um, sales window, we saw, you know, I get a lot of screenshots and texts, but a single per- person purchased a, a seat at Universal CityWalk in the very front row was seat A15. It's the closest you can get. And so this individual bought that seat very early on, as soon as the tickets dropped, and they were very clear about where they wanted to sit. The tweet itself went viral. I think someone wrote, who's the absolute madman who booked this singular front <laughs> row for Oppenheimer at 70 yes. millimeter. And that post got 26 million views. And oh people started to wonder who this who this individual was. And we worked very closely with AMC and Universal and actually decided our team went out there that evening and we had created, we had a drop of a limited edition um, uh, uh, sort of a piece of artwork that features our cameras. And we decided that the very first one of these should go to that mystery fan. And we showed up that night and lo and behold, it was someone that loves IMAX and watches IMAX three times uh, 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 a week and we were really excited about it. And, uh, he got the, uh, the limited edition litho. It's the first one ever made. And surprisingly, we did the drop a couple days later formally on our merch store and that piece sold out. So, you know, I think there's these moments where uh-huh. we're kind of leaning into the passion that our fans have. And I think you're going to see that across so many parts of, uh, of marketing moving forward. Barbie had a, I, I read $150 million spend behind it, 100 different partners, which offers its own kind of barter marketing. Um, but how typical is it for that much money to be spent on marketing? And is it changing? 
uh, owners of studios looking for better value when it comes to those to the ROI on the marketing spend behind movies? Yeah, I mean, I won't speak on behalf of Warner Brothers and, and Universal on their over marketing spends. And I think that the article that you're referencing is interesting because it kind of cuts both ways. I think it helps marketeers justify having bigger budgets. Look how much the assumption on Barbie is, but there's synergy. You know, I think Barbie is a really good example of partners coming together. And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, of value in that. I think you'll also hear that we never have enough. So you have this, you know, this conflation of, you know, what is the right amount of money? I think the more more important thing in the discussion is the collision of the two brands together is what made the net new. And, you know, brands colliding is something that has always been super fascinating to me. It's like peanut butter plus jelly isn't peanut butter and jelly. It's something brand new. And it's something that I think we're going to see more of outside of the traditional partnership model, which is, you know, how are we going to make this financial model work? You know, there could be no two different brands and experiences, but something held them together. You know, you can read the demographics between Barbie and Oppenheimer, but the thing that held them together is a fanatical passion for film and storytelling and also being around others who are as passionate about that. So the cosplay you're seeing, the dressing up, we certainly saw a lot of people dressed up in Oppenheimer gear looking very swank at, um, at, at a number of locations. And that's just completely different. It's just being able to um, demonstrate um, your fandom and, and marketing dollars aren't going to create those moments. So collision of brands, I think you're going to see more of uh, in a non-traditional way. We're all looking for ways to connect and to feel community. And there's certainly been lots of big movies out this year, but these two felt very different from everything that came before. Um, maybe we can talk about risk a little bit. Like there's lots of risk taken with these movies. Um, and you know, you as a marketer have to take some risks too, and there has to be trust between partners. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think a really interesting exercise is to look back three and six months out on the long lead narrative around both these titles and then watch the narrative change over time. And I think we're in a momentum business and momentum minimizes risk. There's always risk in everything we do, but our job is to create heat around movies. And for us, um, at IMAX, you know, the biggest risk is to, 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 is to, is to not showcase the exacting standards that these filmmakers are, are, are working with. And it is a level of craft that is just beyond. And I think if you look at Oppenheimer and you look at, um, what, uh, the cast have spoken so positively around the filmmaking is just on a whole nother level. So, you know, the risk for us always ends up being, you know, not trying new things or worrying about something going wrong. And I think on Oppenheimer, everything changed every day. You know, we were on 24 hour alerts for, you know, the last three weeks and we're still, um, you know, having to, to shuffle. So I think the way, um, teams are dealing with risks is actually to go back to the basics and get war rooms up and to talk a lot and to, um, to, to, to work with, to be very clear with partners, you know, what we're, what we'd hope to do and to not take things off the table because they feel too risky. And I think when you have uh, movies like this that benefit from, um, uh, good risk, you, you, you certainly, you, you certainly see it. I mean, again, you know, we had this movie in, in 70 millimeter very publicly, we have this in 30 locations around the world. Many people would say that's risky to say you only have a movie in 30 locations. Well, in fact, those movies have sold out and have done a huge business for, for, for other theaters who do not have, um, you know, IMAX. And so we think that we have the ability to raise all boats 
um, and to be very proud that we are delivering something um, very um, bespoke. And I think that's missing in the world, Claire. I think there's just been a desire to have everything. Um, uh, uh, it just it just feels a little. It's just missing something. There's a little bit of soul missing. And so when you watch something that's as tenderly crafted as Oppenheimer, I think you can push the risk a little bit because it's so good. Yeah. What's coming in the se- in the second half of the year, Danny? I'm intrigued to know what I should be watching and looking out for at the end of the summer, come fall, and and the holidays. I mean, there's there's tons of great movies out, and we're really excited. Just as an industry, I think you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm about how we can continue to make the movie-going experience exceptional. You know, I, I think the COVID, just to just to take a quick point on this, COVID has really pointed out that the movie business has to compete within home. It has to provide a fundamentally um, elevated experience um, uh, so that it can justify um, the time and energy spent to go to it. And I think you have um, a very revitalized um, exhibition um, uh, industry, which is very exciting. For us, you know, we have two uh, film for IMAX titles that I'm personally working on right now. Uh, in uh, Dune, uh, Dune Two, Dune Part Two, and uh, Aquaman, and Dune Two is just a really, you know, fascinating, you know, um, uh, challenge for us as Dune One uh, kind of sort of came out during that COVID area, and we delivered record-breaking market share on it, and it and it, it demonstrated that you know IMAX fans really wanted Denis Villeneuve's vision in sort of this IMAX world, so we're really knee deep in um working on on how we make this uh even bigger and better and so there's a ton of great movies coming out this year and i can never pick a favorite but um even movies that are not in imax you know we we certainly are are cheering the industry on yeah Do, do you feel like there's an inflection point now where people are saying you know what okay people are coming back the movies uh have proven resilient and things might be getting better or are people saying there's a strike and nobody is available to promote on the red carpet and there's a continued sense of anxiety about the movies. I think headlines have created a sense of trauma for all of us as just humans. You know, is there a, is there a natural disaster? Is there a shortage of toilet paper? Are movies going away? Is there a SAG strike? You know, we are very headline tweet driven or X driven, what we're ever calling it now. And the reality is, is, um, is is no it's not as bad as we continue to to say i I had said to our ceo rich gelfond on oppenheimer this is our strategy i am going to do everything in my power to make this successful no stone unturned so that i can say with all honesty at the end of that campaign we did everything we could and i think with the industry whether or not it's shrinking or growing reaching 2019 levels those are all very very confusing headlines that aim to um, separate and bifurcate our focus. Our focus is to put the biggest, best stories in these extra- extraordinary experiences in theaters and and the numbers and people will come. And we just got to build it brick by brick. I, I don't think these, um, these clickbaity headlines are helping anyone. It's really dividing people and making it about one or the other. We have a job to do, which is to protect these incredible stories and remember that these stories are being consumed by millions of people around the world. And when you look at box office results, like we had this weekend, they rival smartphone launches. They rival some of the biggest um, sort of consumer moments in, 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 in the year. 
And so, you know, and then, but someone wants to say whether or not it's comparable to 2019. It's just not an issue. We, we are, we, we, uh, we've, we are having a fantastic year and we have record breaking results. So that should tell us that consumers are out and the demand is there. Denny, you mentioned the global audience and IMAX is a business that has plenty of exposure to the international markets, in particular China. Can you talk a little bit about what people are consuming overseas? Um, are people saying, I want to watch an, a Hollywood American made movie? Are they saying, I want to watch a Chinese made movie? Um, are, the, are the big Hollywood uh, blockbusters still commanding attention overseas? What are you seeing out there? It's a mixed bag. Um, certainly one of the benefits of having a global footprint is that we have uh, sort of a, a very high level view of, of, of big trends. But when you take it down to the micro level, as you rightly pointed out, local tastes, you know, are, are change over time. And, and, you know, IMAX's ability to flex into that has been one of our, our core strengths. Um, you know, China, as an example, you know, the tastes in a tier two or tier three city, um, like, you know, Nanjing is going to be very different than a tier one city in Shanghai, where you have comedy, you know, indexing higher than you would uh, have a movie like The Meg, which, um, you know, is a blockbuster, um, you know, big, big action kind of uh, movie. So even within a country, you have multiple segments. And we're fortunate to have local teams that understand that with um, our great distribution teams that can program dynamically. I think you also have this um this trend where quote local local titles which i still find very amusing um in, in this in this business that we call it local because it, you know it, it it it's oh it's a weird way to call it uh, local but you have a local title that actually um transcends countries and anime has been a, a really great headline for us we're really we're really we're really focused on fandom segments and anime is an underserved segment certainly um content that you would only find in certain places but when you put on the big screen you see record-breaking results and we have an outside share of um local language as a portion of our revenue um and we're we're very excited about it we have movies like the boy and the heron which uh, is a miyazaki uh film uh which uh is currently in uh, japan but uh, we're very excited about its trajectory in other markets. We have Bollywood titles that do better outside of, uh, of of India. You have Japanese titles that do better outside of Japan. So what you're seeing is, and I think streaming has uh, helped condition some of this, lowering the barrier to uh, foreign uh, language and storytelling from other places to bring us together. So it does all kind of work in tandem, going back to my original point of, I don't think we're as binary as one or the other. I have with me today, Danny Tu, he's the Chief Marketing Officer at IMAX. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about AI and how that's changing your role. And also to ask you about TikTok. Are you spending more money on TikTok? How is that influencing the movie business? Well, I mean, I'd probably be the the odd person out by publicly disclaiming that I think AI, you know, I think marketeers are still trying to get their arms around it. I think if if you, if you were to say you have your AI strategy, you know, um, uh, uh, ready, you'd be you'd be pushing it. I think the language is also really confusing. You know, AI is an extension of of machine learning, which is an extension of data and analytics. And, you know, we do have to use the information that we get in a better way to find the insight so that we can market around that insight. AI is going to unlock new opportunities and also new risks. But then I'd also say for any marketeers listening in, there's an extreme amount of downward pressure to always be on trend. And I'd be the first person to say, 
let it go. Like, you know, Elsa, it, <laughs> you don't need to find a fix to everything. You're not a lesser person. You're perfectly formed. And the questions you should be asking are, is there an opportunity here? Am I resourced to do it? Is it right size for our business? Or is it something that's just not right for us so that we can stay focused on the things that matter? And I think there is an overarching pressure for CMOs to always be positive, upbeat, trendsetty. And I think a core goal of ours is to be very clear, to be meticulous, to be thoughtful, to be fulsome, and not to be trendy always, because it doesn't necessarily work. We were talking about NFTs how long ago, Claire? Yeah. Like, I don't a... even remember. And uh, where mm -hmm. are those now? So, yeah. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but on, and, and, and so I, 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 I send that out into the ether as a, as a, as a, as a love letter. For, yeah. uh, on TikTok, uh, you know, certainly, you know, we recently launched onto TikTok uh, earlier this year off um, another uh, big success for us in Avatar 2, The Way of Water. And we're certainly finding a very good success this year. But for us, like, how do you put IMAX, which is the biggest screens in the world, onto the smallest screens in the world? So that's actually the creative brief for us. And we've been having a lot of fun. And mm -hmm. um, we, uh, we've had some success uh, with many um, uh, activations on TikTok. And we're still finding our, our space. But I think for all brands out there, there's no one size fit all. You have a very unique role. Um, you know, we, we joked about, you know, um, IMAX TikTok size screenings, which are the antithesis of our, of our brand and whether or not that would be playful and fun and, and how risky that would be. So we're, we're, yeah. we're still in it, but we're really excited about it. And then I, I wanted to talk to you, Danny, because I had read in Adweek that you had suffered from cancer and that you lost part of your hearing, but I'd like to know how that experience has changed how you think about your role, how you think about cinema goers, and how you think about disability in the business. Well, thank you for uh, um, sort of highlighting it because it is something that I am very passionate about. And you would be surprised how many filmmakers and um, and uh, industry colleagues have reached out to talk to me about about hearing loss. You know, I think for all of us, we all face very many challenges and cancer was the best, worst thing that ever happened to me. Um, it, it certainly has been um, uh, a, a foundation for my career because as an, uh, in, as an invisible disability, it allows me to see things in a different way. And I think for all marketeers, it's our ability to see things from our consumer's point of view. But certainly um, for me and how it applies, it has made it very personal. And um, in a business where you have to be very professional, I think personal can give you the energy and the joie de vivre to kind of knock down doors. And when I, when I started to hear about the millions of Americans that had um, a, a, a depressed or um, a, a negative experience uh, with their hearing in theaters, it got me really uh, excited to uh, make it a, a point. And, you know, there's been a lot of work in the industry to put um, on-screen titling for, um, for those that uh, need it. There's, um, there are technology aids that are woefully out of date um, with exhibition. This has brought up a lot of conversation in the disability community, uh, which has been uh, very exciting um, through the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. There has been, uh, I have been very vocal about, um, uh, you know, the need to um, highlight these very important topics. Um, you are a member of the Academy, right? And and also BAFTA. And so this is a conversation you've been bringing to both of those organizations? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just personal. I'm just one face um, in, in it. And, 
you know, I was interviewed uh, for um, during Eternals where there was the first deaf superhero. And, you know, someone asked me this big momentous question, um, uh, you know, what do you think it means? And I, I kind of gave the response, I think, that said, I think that superhero would have said, um, you know, being deaf is probably the least interesting thing about her. She's she's fast as light. She's passionate. She's loving. She's caring. But it's still part of her existence. So I think making it personal is how you make it professional. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I wear special earplugs when I go into screenings to protect my ears and people wonder why I'm doing it. And it usually opens up a conversation when I'm in a theater. I do ask about accessibility and I make it very personal and, uh, movie going, um, and making those accessible is a huge part of that. And we're really excited to bring more fans and audiences into that experience. Wonderful. Denny too, it has been so interesting to chat with you about movies, about TikTok, about AI and about marketing. Um, I wish you the best. It's been a great conversation and thank you so much for sharing your personal uh, story with us as well. I appreciate it. I, I, I very much enjoyed it, Claire. Thank you very much for having me and um, we're going to keep up the momentum. We also talked to David Heron, who is with The Quorum. The Quorum is a company he started after many years as head of research at talent agency UTA. And the company tracks the interest of the moviegoing public in seeing certain movies and what their experience is like inside movie theaters. David and I talked about how Barbie is changing, what studios are thinking about what audiences want these days. David, tell me what you were seeing before the movie came out and now it's out. Uh, tell me your, give me your takeaway on, on what this says about Hollywood. And uh, this is essentially a movie that a lot of people didn't even know what it was about before they went to see it. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me. Barbie is a really, really unusual one. It's a terrific case study. Let me just sort of start by saying, you know, when we say that the quorum is in the world of film tracking, what exactly does that mean? Film tracking kind of gets at two things. One is awareness. We look at what upcoming movies do people know about? What, which movies are they aware of? And the other thing that we look at is interest. Are they interested in actually seeing the movies? And what we saw with Barbie was really actually quite unique. And what I mean by that is typically about six weeks before release, we can kind of get a sense of how a movie is going to perform looking at those metrics. And they don't tend to change a whole lot in that final sort of six-week period. But in the case of Barbie, about three weeks before the movie opened, we started to see the numbers soar. And that was really very, very unusual. And I don't just mean go up a little bit. I really do, in fact, mean soar. Um, and I can't remember the last time we saw anything like that happen before. You think this is a once-in-a-decade phenomenon, right? You've never seen anything like this in, in a long, long time in a movie. In my career as as head of research at, at United Talent Agency, you know, I've been looking at tracking for 20 years. Every now and again, we get a movie like this that kind of performs in a very strange way. But this is really very, very unusual. And by the way, it wasn't just Barbie. It was also Oppenheimer to a lower degree. I mean, we saw the numbers for Oppenheimer really start to take off, not quite three weeks out, but in that final seven days. And to have both of them happen on the same weekend was really very, very unusual. And what what do you think drove people to go to the movies? Uh, obviously, you'd have to be living on Mars not to see that there was a huge marketing campaign, hundreds of brand tie-ins, but also an explosion of media about the campaign and about the movie and about all facets of this very different, unique movie. Um, 
you know, talk to us a little bit about what what changed and why. Was it that, that Warner and Universal for Oppenheimer uh, put on an incredible marketing effort, that, the likes of which we haven't seen since maybe before COVID, maybe the last James Bond movie? Tell me about that. Yes. Well, we often talk about eventizing a movie. And, and, and basically what that means is making people feel as though this movie is special. And Warner Brothers and Universal really did a masterclass job in doing this. Um, I, I will say that, you know, again, I kind of always go back to the data. And what we saw in the data for Barbie in particular was that younger women were firmly on board for this movie at a very early stage. Women over 35 were not. And I think the challenge for Warner Brothers in that home stretch was to try and get women over 35 as interested in the movie as the younger women. And I think they really did that. And I think they did that through the eventizing of the marketing. And what I mean by that is, you know, it was ubiquitous, right? Everywhere there were, there were hundreds of product integrations for Barbie. For Barbie. They built a, a house in Malibu for Barbie. And I think one of the takeaways from this is that consumers are not stupid and, and that essentially breaks down to the fact that a consumer can kind of sense when a studio believes in a movie. Consumers can sense when a studio understands what the movie is. Consumers can sense when a studio can effectively communicate what makes a movie special. And that's exactly what happened with both of these movies, but Barbie in particular. Yeah. Um, we should mention some news that, that just broke about uh, when marketing doesn't go so well. The, the Japanese... Uh, Warner Brothers employees were upset that um, there were memes and social media accounts being shared with the two characters from the movies and the nuclear cloud in the background and flames. And, you know, their position is, look, this Oppen Oppenheimer, it was a, an event that a, a movie about a nuclear, a nuclear bomb that was dropped on their country. And, and that was a very serious thing for them when people have lost their lives and, uh, you know, tying it with Barbie is offensive to them in some ways. Um, most of the marketing went very, very well. And I think Warner had to retract or apologize for that uh, social media snafu. What, what do you, what do you think about that? I mean, obviously these are two very different movies. I had to give Warner Brothers a lot of credit for really getting in front of the situation. They apologized for it very quickly. That's going to happen every now and again, especially such a, with, with a multifaceted marketing campaign. Some things are not going to hit the right note. Some things are going to go awry. Something may not have been fact-checked or quality-checked. And, and when that happens, you have to do exactly what Warner Brothers did, which is just apologize for it and get, get in front of it. But... You know, I think that we should actually applaud the fact that in a campaign that was this large, there was only one little snafu. Right, right. <laughs> Absolutely. And so just to go back to the who went to see it, my friend went to a showing in Culver City. She sat next to a man in his 70s who laughed his socks off and thought it was really funny. And she told me she looked around and there were literally no kids in the audience. It was uh, older people. So how did how did Warner encourage people who were not, teenage girls to go out and see this movie? What were the elements that attracted people? Or was it simply, I can't be left out of the social conversation and I might be if I don't see this movie? Well, I think it's it's really, it, the latter is really a big part of it, right? Because, and, and that sort of explains the playability of the movie as well, where you tap into this moment in the culture 
that um, just grows to be so large and you don't want to be on the outside looking in when that happens. And that's really very, it's very difficult to achieve that kind of moment in culture. Uh, <clears throat> I will say that, in, in again, looking at the data, one of the things that I loved was the fact that um, we saw people going to see Barbie who said that this was the first movie that they have seen since the pandemic, or they can't remember the last time they saw a movie. And why is that important? That's important because theatrical exhibition has shrunk, right? Box office grosses as a whole uh, in the macro are down. Some audiences simply have not come back to the theater since COVID. And so to find a movie that can get these people to go back is incredibly exciting. And it's also incredibly healthy for theatrical. So that's th this moment in time Getting people off of the sidelines back into the theaters is really wonderful to see. Yeah, you would hope that this creates a habit. And certainly I think uh, you've seen that there's repeat viewing of Barbie. Um, what is the effect of the actor's strike, though, or the writer's strike and the lack of red carpet and the potential lack of product? Is this going to uh, be a situation where people are like, yeah, let me go back to the, the movies and there's nothing there? Well, we, we've been doing some research over the past 10 days since Barbie came out, and we've been asking people, just people who saw Barbie, um, we asked them, prior to Barbie, when was the last time you saw a movie in a theater? And then we took just those people who said, I've, I've, I've gone back to the theater for the first time. And then we asked them a follow-up question, which was, based on your experience with Barbie, does this make you want to go back to the movies more often? In other words, have we tapped into this kind of muscle memory? Has it reminded you what you love about going to the movies? And 50% of the people that we polled who kind of fell into this group said, yes, it does make me want to go back to the movies more often. Now, the sad thing here is this is happening in a moment in time when theatrical has some real challenges, and those are the strike. And in particular, a lot of movies are starting to shift their release dates getting pushed into 2024 because they don't have the talent there to support the movies through junkets or on TV shows or what, or on social posts. And so it's a little bit unfortunate that we have this enthusiasm among, among theater goers, but we can't necessarily capitalize on it right now. And that feels like a, that feels like a, a real missed opportunity. Let's talk a little bit about Oppenheimer. It's a three hour movie. It's a dark subject. Why would somebody be motivated to go and see that movie? A lot of that has to do with Christopher Nolan and his enormous fan base. I think that the Oppenheimer, uh, the, the success of Oppenheimer is really very interesting because of the story uh, with IMAX. And I know you're going to sort of dive into that a little bit deeper. Yeah, we talked with Danny too, the chief marketing officer. Yep. And that's, uh, what, what's interesting about Oppenheimer is that there is a very large group of people who are willing to pay a premium to see uh, a, a sort of a, an excellent film-going experience on these large format screens. And then if you have this director who is, who is making content using those cameras catered specifically to that audience, that's a win, right? So that's what's really wonderful about Oppenheimer. Plus, the movie is incredible. And so you have, you have all of these, things, these sort of factors coming together, and, uh, and it sort of speaks to a very different experience than Barbie. Barbie is not a, a, a film that's being driven by large format grosses. It's being driven by traditional box office dollars. So to have these two movies in the marketplace at the same time with these two different experiences, again, that's really wonderful as well. Are people rolling out to see these movies because they're both very different from what's on offer? Uh, typically, when I go to the theater, it is superhero movies. It feels very samey. It doesn't appeal to me. Um, 
tell me about superhero fatigue. Are we the Flash didn't do very well? Some of Disney's big movies are not hitting at the moment. Are is the audience? sick of these kind of movies or is there still an audience there but they just want some different ideas the studios certainly fall into this trap of you want to go see fast nine so here's fast 10 <laughs> and what we're seeing is real pushback on that that we're seeing pushback on cookie cutter stories we're seeing pushback on sequels or we're seeing pushback on old ip and, and i think we have to be sort of mindful of the fact that a lot of these movies like The Flash and Fast X and Indiana Jones were made, you know, development started in these before the pandemic. It's a very different environment back then. Behaviors have changed post-pandemic in terms of what there's a, there's a certain threshold in terms of going to see a movie. You have to be willing to shell out $8, $10, $15. And people are being much more judicious about how they spend their money. And what they're saying is, you know what, I'm not interested in seeing those movies that are exactly the same as before the pandemic. I want to see different movies. I want to see fresh movies. And so that's a real, that's a really important takeaway. Now, as, as far as superhero fatigue, um, there's been a lot of talk about that over the past few years. It does appear as though that is real. Um, and the way that it is kind of manifesting itself at the moment is, yes, The Flash did not perform especially well. We've got Blue Beetle coming out in a few weeks, which looks like it's going to be soft. Uh, Black Adam kind of underperformed a little bit. And so we're beginning to see the, 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 real, the real impact of that fatigue in terms of grosses. Now, what remains to be seen is what happens when Aquaman comes out, right? So that's a really big property. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy did quite well. So is it a case where the really big ones are going to succeed and then sort of the smaller ones don't? We don't really know just yet. But if there is a takeaway from just the past six weeks, it's that audiences are craving something new and fresh. And I certainly hope that the studios are paying attention. Is your data showing you that people will now come out and go to the movies, that they're uh, not saying, I'll wait for streaming, that there's a, a desire to sit in a, in a movie theater and feel that sense of community and see everybody dressed up in pink? Um, you know, what's, what's the tracking telling you about where the movie going public is at right now? Is, are they, are they likely to shun streaming or to say, you know what, it is a different experience and I want to experience it there in the cinema instead? Well, I, I, people have different attitudes about watching movies at home versus watching movies in a theater. Mm -hmm. And for many people, the two of them can coexist, right? I mean, the benefits of watching a movie at home is that you can hit pause, you can hit stop, you've got, it's a different comfort level than being in a theater. The advantage to going to a movie theater is that you've got this communal experience and you've got the technology. I mean, you just can't compete with the sound systems and the big screens in a theater. And what we're beginning to see in the data is that those people who really rely heavily on the benefits of watching at home are now beginning to say, hey, wait a minute, you know what? Yeah. I do want to go back to the theater. I do want to be part of that big screen experience. I do want to have the sound system. And, 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 and for more and more people, the two experiences are beginning to coexist. Whereas for, for a large sum of people, they were like, no, I'm fine. I, I'll, I'm happy to just watch my movies at home. And that's really wonderful. We can get some of those people off of their couch back into the theater. And the data is beginning to suggest that, even just looking at the data post-Barbie. So last question, David, what should we be watching out for the next few months? We're, we're a month away, I guess, from fall releases and the holidays. What would you recommend our listeners go see? <laughs> In terms of what movies to go see? I, I, 
Well, let me just say that I think that the, the what to watch for over the next four months are maybe not specific movies in particular, but to see how the strike impacts whether or not you're going to have any movies to see at all. <laughs> right? So, you know, one Christmas movie, Ghostbusters, already got moved into 2024. It's possible that a couple more might as well. And uh, that's, to me, that's the most important thing right now. The, the, what, was, what was wonderful about Chris, the upcoming Christmas season was that it was going to be very different than Christmas of 2022. Christmas 2022 was really all about Avatar. Puss in Boots did really nice business as well. But there was one movie that dominated. When we look at Christmas 2023, there are nine or ten wide releases that are scheduled to open and the wonderful thing about that is that it was variety, it was choice, and it harkened back to Christmas's pre-pandemic. Well, now we've got this strike, which really threatens the Christmas season. And start if, if some of these movies begin to push into 2024 because they don't have the actors to promote them, well, that would be really unfortunate. So, so I'm not so much focused on what movie to watch. I'm more focused on whether or not there will be movies to watch at all. Yikes. That sounds dire. I'm optimistic that it will be resolved before we lose the, the Christmas box office season. Yeah, let's hope so. David Heron from The Quorum, thank you so much for joining us today at The Media Mix. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate it. That was my conversation with movie expert David Heron, who saw early on that the Barbie movie tracking was showing some unusual trends. Now that the movie's out, he's hoping that there's momentum, that people go back to the movies, but he's also anxious that there isn't enough product or enough movies to get people to keep going and buying those tickets towards the end of the year. For more on this conversation, be sure to subscribe to the Media Mix newsletter on Substack. The link is in the description. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring or advertising on the Media Mix, email us at themediamixus at gmail.com. That's themediamixus at gmail.com. And in the meantime, stay in the mix by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.